If you're with me, say hello. If you are with me, say hello. I joked around a little bit before I got up here that I was going to ask you to stand up every five minutes. <laughs> Worship was awesome and we're going great. And then the lights go down and we're reminded that we lost an hour of sleep last night. <laughs> and we didn't even think about the fact of the whole time element whenever we were putting the bumper together, what today was going to be. So we're like actually pointing out the obvious to you. You lost sleep and you're tired. Um, but, but hang with us, hang with us this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to keep rolling in the series that um, is part of a broader series talking about the kingdom of God. Um, and Danny, in January, started uh, looking specifically at the parables where Jesus talks about what the kingdom is like. And so the series um, called The Kingdom is Like, this morning is the next step in that, talking about the kingdom is like a just and generous master. So we're going to look at um, the full text that Michael uh, kind of began with this morning. Um, but first, we want to kind of take a step back from where we're looking uh, specifically at this parable where Jesus is talking about, um, uh, is talking about the master the, or the, the, the ruler of a household. And we're going to look at the context of where it's fitting, because for this passage, context is so, so key. So if you look, um, if, if you have your Bibles open or if you have your app open on your phone, if you just look a little bit up from chapter 20 into uh, chapter 19, you're going to see that there is the story of the rich young ruler, okay? Um, and so here's just kind of a quick break, breakdown um, synopsis of what happens with the rich young ruler. Um, there is a guy who comes up to Jesus, and um, we know him as the rich young ruler, so he has money, he has prominence. He has influence. Um, he, uh, he comes to Jesus asking, um, what must I do? What one thing should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus's response to him um, is to, he tells him to go do actions that are all oriented toward the way that we interact, the way that we respond to others. So he says, uh, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery. Um, and he says, uh, honor your mom and dad, uh, love your neighbors the same way that you love yourself. And so the, the rich young ruler who's standing there in front of Jesus, he's, he's like, yeah, 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 I, I got all that. But, but what am I still missing? I'm still missing one thing. And Jesus's response to the rich young ruler, who he's known as the rich young ruler, to us today, Jesus tells him to abdicate that title. He tells him to take all that he has and to give it to uh, the poor, and then he could come and follow Jesus. So the rich young ruler, he leaves uh, dejected and discouraged. He, he turns and walks away. And so Jesus, seeing this as, as Jesus does as a prime teaching opportunity, he turns from this interaction with the rich young ruler, he turns to his friends, he turns to the disciples, and he starts talking to them. He starts telling them about how difficult it is for the one who has many riches or many possessions to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And this is, this is a sermon all by itself, so we're not going to dive into this. But the general idea is those who have a lot, it's easy to turn their affections or turn their minds away from the goodness of God to them and kind of rely on their own, um, their own self-provision. So what Jesus is saying to them is it's, it's as difficult as a camel going through the eye of a needle, which he's literally talking about this gate that's really, really narrow, and a camel is the largest animal that they know of their time, and how it's almost impossible for a camel to enter this really, really narrow gate. And Jesus' friends, his disciples, they respond to him, and they say, well, then, then who can even enter the kingdom of heaven? Who then can be saved? And Jesus' response to them is, with God, all things are possible. So then Peter, 
in, in really kind of stereotypical Peter fashion, he responds to Jesus and he does it like we see Peter in the rest of the gospels. He's, he's bold and he often um, is thinking about himself, which I can kind of resonate with those two things about Peter. Um, he turns to Jesus and he says, but, but what about us? We've, we've given up everything to follow you. We're not just talking about riches. We've given up everything to follow you. So, so what, what will we get and Jesus' response to him, he, he talks about um, what the kingdom of God will be like, what eternity in heaven with God will be like, and where the disciples fit in that whole landscape and what their, what their roles will be. But then he ends um, the, in the last verse of chapter 19, in verse 30, he says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Okay, so this is all context for what we're talking about this morning when we look at this one specific parable in Matthew chapter 20. We move from the rich young ruler to the disciples um, to Peter. We have to remember that when Jesus tells parables, they're always in a context and there's always a really deep purpose and he's always taking things that people can connect with really, really easily and he's teaching a deeper kingdom reality in the midst of something that they can easily grab a hold of. So let's read uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. We're going to read verses 1 through 16. Um, and I'm going to give us a little bit of context as we kind of read along in this. So just kind of stick with me as we jump back and forth a little bit. Jesus says, starting in verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, which is kind of a standard day's wage. It was a very fair, kind of normal payment for a day's work. He sent them out into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, and here, just a, a kind of a side note, we have to remember um, how, how they went about time in Jesus' culture. The day would start at six, and it would run to six. So it's running a 12-hour time span, and it's broken up into four different three-hour increments. So Jesus starts at six, and then here, about the third hour, um, which is at nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplaces, which is where people went to go hire day laborers, and others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, whatever is right, I will give you. So they, um, so they went. Going out again, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, so if you're tracking time with me here, eleventh hour is about five o'clock, the end of the day is at six, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to, them, said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go to the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, he gave each of them a denarius. And how much did Jesus tell the people that he hired first? At the very beginning of the day, at six o'clock in the morning, how much did he say he was gonna pay them? A denarius, the exact same thing that he's given the people that have worked, that have worked one hour. Um, now when those who, came f um, who he hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last who worked only an hour, you have made them equal to us and who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree to work for me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So, will, so the last will be first 
and the first will be last. You can see those phrases as kind of bookends to this parable. He ends chapter 19 and he ends ends this parable with the same same phrase. Um, The last will be first and the first will be last. The first will be last and the last will be first. Okay, so what's going on here when we read this parable, kind of our first gut reaction um, is, is this is just not fair, right? These people have worked all day. They have been out in the heat of the day. They kind of like withstood the test of begrudging time, doing what the laborer or what the, the master of the house of the vineyard had asked them to do. They'd really toughed it out. They had earned that denarius that they had agreed to work for. They worked really, really hard. So when we read it, we get why the laborers that were first hired, why they would be um, begrudged, why they would think that what the master was doing was completely unfair. We were bent toward justice. We're bent toward fairness. This is actually part of the image of God that is born on humanity, but something that's also perverted by sin, perverted by our our offenses towards God. So we see this, and our our first response is, it's not fair. That's not fair, which often sounds like a scene from my house or your house, or if you were ever a kid one point in time in your life. (laughs) We have all heard or said or been in a place where our response, our gut reaction is, that's just not fair. Say it with me. It's just not, it's just not, it's not fair. This is not the way that things should shake down. It's not the way that it should go. We connect with these laborers that were first hired. The way that the spokesman, we're going to kind of identify him like that, the way that he speaks for those who were first hired, we totally get everything that he was saying. But why Jesus is telling us this story is not just so we can resonate with an idea of justice. He's trying to teach us something bigger, something deeper. Remember what has come before this parable in context. He's teaching us the character of God and the economy of the kingdom. The character of God and the economy of the kingdom. And the difference that these make in our lives. So before we move any further, just to be clear, what the parable is not saying. On first glance, when we read this, it, it may take our, our minds to thinking that the way that this parable shakes down is, is the way that God rewards those who place their faith in Christ. So you read this and you think about the laborer that was hired first in the day. And maybe you think about someone who chose to follow Christ at a young age and they have kind of withstood the, the faith test of time. And at the end of their life, they're gonna receive a reward and that reward is eternity, an unbroken relationship with God. And then we think about the person who maybe has chosen um, to repent, to turn from their sin, maybe on their deathbed, and they've pushed into belief in God, but they've only done it a short amount of time. But because they have placed their faith and their hope in the life, perfect life, in the sacrificial death, and in the resurrection of Jesus, which defeats sin, they inherit, they get kind of that same reward, Right, Whether we've served, for, served the Lord for decades or whether we have just repented maybe moments or hours before we die. And this is actually not what this parable is saying. Okay, And track with me here is why it cannot say that. Because if we equal the reward to heaven, then at the same time we have to equal our work to salvation. And this is completely counter opposite to the way that God um, offers salvation to us in Christ. Scripture is very clear to us that the way that we... Um, the way that we gain unbroken relationship with God is through the work of Jesus alone, not anything that we do on our own. So his life, his death, his resurrection, 
Those are the things that for us gain our eternal reward. The only thing that our work has done for us, it has earned us separation from God. Our offenses have earned um, a a breach in our relationship with him. That's the only thing that our work in and of itself has earned for us, but only through Jesus is that relationship restored. There is no other way. So the, the parable is not saying that. The parable is making clear the character of God and the economy of the kingdom. This, um, when, when we look at, at this and we think about um, what the parable is not saying and we actually think about what the parable is saying, it says a few different things to us, but one is it kind of reiterates this, um, the way that this, the kingdom of God operates, how it's unexpected, and, and in some ways it's upside down actually than what we would actually think. If you think about Jesus when he comes on the scene, we see him first recruiting who to come along with him and kind of be the people that further the message of his kingdom. A bunch of fishermen, right? Jesus' first miracle, it's at a party when the wine runs out, right? This is, this is not what we would expect. Jesus' longest discourse in scripture, which is what we kind of walked through back in the fall, what Jesus says, um, the kind of people that will reign in his kingdom, it's the poor, it's the peaceful, it's those that are hungry, it's those that are persecuted, it's those who are mourning, kind of the exact opposite that we would expect from the one who would come to make all the things that are wrong make them right again. The kingdom of God, the economy of the kingdom, it's unexpected and it's a little bit upside down. So our eyes, they automatically connect with, in this parable, they automatically connect with the laborers. They go directly to them because we can resonate with it and we actually, in some ways, we kind of like want to lobby on their side a little bit. We want to say, yes, it's not fair. Yes, we don't get it. But there's more going on in this parable. There's more going on than just the laborers themselves. There are actually three different sets of characters. Um, We see the master of, of the vineyard, the master of the household. We see those laborers that were hired first, and then we see everybody else that was hired after them. Um, And as we kind of walk through and unpack this parable a little bit together, I want to make sure and highlight kind of the different characteristics that we see in at least these first two groups, in the master and then also in the laborers that were first hired. So track along with me on this, okay? And these are just kind of like uh, synthesizing this parable together. Some things we learn about the master. We see that he took care of what he had. He went out early in the morning. He hired some laborers to take care of his land, to take care of his vineyard. And then he went out again and again and again to hire people to take care of what he had. The second thing we see is that he was fair. He was just. He negotiated good payment with those who worked for him. We also see that he went after the ones that nobody else wanted And that's kind of the way it appears with those laborers that were hired last. He says, why are you still standing here all day long? And their response to him is what? Nobody else wanted us. But the master went out after them. We see that he was intentional, right? Whenever he asked the foreman to go and pay those who had worked all day, he gives him instruction on how he wants it to be done. He says, go and pay the last one first. There's really deep purpose in this. Jesus wouldn't be using this story if this, wasn't, this, this aspect of it wasn't situated in here. We see that the, the master, he is relational. He replied to that frustrated, grumpy, grumbling laborer or the spokesman for those laborers. And what did he call him whenever he addressed him? He called him friend. We see that he was a teacher, that he questioned that frustrated laborer. 
And he actually pointed out the real issue that was at hand. He was begrudging the master's generosity toward others that he felt like he was not receiving himself. The master was honest. He did exactly what he told the laborer he was going to do. The exact thing he said he was going to do was the exact thing that he did. And then the last thing, and this is really important for us this morning, we see that the master, he pays the laborers not according to what they earn, but according to his own generosity, according to the character of the master. Okay, So if we look kind of all together at the master and we see his character, we see the things that he did, he is a just and generous guy. We don't see a whole lot wrong with the way that the master is acting in this parable. But then we look at those guys that we resonate so closely with, and we see a lot of unflattering things about them. If we we look at the first set of workers that Jesus hired here, we see several different things about them. We see that they compared themselves to everyone else that was hired. We see that they compared their pay, they they compared how long they work, They compared their working conditions. They compared based on their expected equality, on their expected fairness. The workers, they looked at those who had been paid and they expected to be paid more because everybody else that came um, that worked less had been paid more as well. We see that their response was one of ingratitude, that they grumbled toward the master. They thought that they deserved more and they wanted the master who was doing, remember, exactly what he said he was going to do. They thought he should do more for them as well. They couldn't see past their own self-interest. They didn't have concern for those others who were paid out of the generosity that the master had shown them. So we look at this parable We see this kind of idea of even comparison happening among the laborers. And we don't just quickly identify with the laborers because we feel like they were treated unjustly. We identify with the laborers because we would respond and we do respond in life the exact same way that they do. We look at life and we begin this trail of comparison. We look at those around us who get more than we do, who are better off than we are, And we start comparing ourselves to them. And we wonder why God is not as good or as generous or as right with us as he is with those that we see that have more than us. And we start down this road of comparison. And for the laborers, what their comparison ended in was disappointment and begrudging God. And and, and, and these unmet expectations led them to go ahead and even just kind of affront the master himself and say, you're being unfair to us. What you gave to them, you gave them more. We expect more from you. And we actually do those same things towards God the way that the laborers responded, responded to the master. Comparison can do one of two things. We're going to camp here for a little bit. Comparison can do one of two things. Comparison can magnify self or comparison can magnify Jesus. And when we talk about this language of magnification, um, think about, I, I think about our kids in the backyard. They got this little insect kit one time that had a little magnifying glass on it. And so they would see these little bugs walking on the grass and they would want to get really close and they would want to look up next to them. And so they'd get up next to it with a magnifying glass and they'd be able to come back and say, I saw this on this bug. They'd be able to see intricate details of what was going on because they were able to look at it and focus on it so closely. And comparison does that for us. It either causes us to focus so intensely on ourselves or comparison can cause us to focus so intensely on the person of Jesus. 
So I want to look first at this idea of comparison pushing us toward uh, magnifying ourselves. Comparison can be the greatest enemy of gratitude. When we look at others and we start comparing ourselves against someone else's, uh, what they have materially, or even um, maybe even some giftings or personality that other people have, or the way that someone has been successful in their career, or the family that they have, and we look at them and we start comparing ourselves against them, thinking that we should have what they have. And because we don't, we're going to respond in anger. We're going to respond in discontentment. We're going to be the grumbling laborers that turn to the master and say, you gave good to them, why, why aren't you giving good to me too? Comparison does that for us. It is the greatest enemy of contentment. Think about these two questions. When does comparison lead us to jealousy and discontentment? And even think about answering them now while we're sitting here. When does comparison lead us to jealousy and discontentment? When does comparison lead us to be self-consumed? When do we look at others? When do we look at the situations of others? And, And in what way do they so invert our thoughts toward ourselves that we don't even see that person or situation as a person anymore? We dehumanize them. We only see what we, what we want. So the act of comparison itself, it is a, a benign act, right? It, it is neither bad nor good. But comparison does really easily open up the door for us to be discontent and ungrateful toward God. It can tempt us to believe that God's goodness is for, toward others is better than God's goodness toward us. And that's, that's just not true. That's not what we see in all of Scripture. That's not what we see in God meeting our deepest need and offering us relationship with himself through Jesus. God isn't just looking to provide for us what we think is good or what we think we need or what we see in others that we think we should have. God meets our deepest need in restoring us to relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. That is our deepest need. And and God meets it for us in Jesus Comparison can tempt us to believe that we would be better off if we have what someone else has. Um, Jacob Simmons and I, we were actually our our minister of single adults, we were talking about this back in the fall, just the idea of contentment. I've been processing it a lot uh, myself over the fall months. And he made the statement that we we often look at others and we think that, that good for them equals bad for us. So when we look at comparison and we see that someone else has it good, that that God's goodness has been shown to them in a really specific way or they've received success in a really specific way, that we look at them and we don't see that that is good. We see that it is bad for us. We see that we are in want, that we have been neglected, that we're the ones in need. Surely if it's good for them, then this whole situation, this whole thing, it's it's bad for me. So comparison itself, it can lead us to magnify self. And let me be clear, friends, uh, my heart easily turns this direction. And I think if we were sitting down having a conversation about this, we would be able to resonate in some ways that we compare ourselves to others or our circumstances to other circumstances. And all it does is it turns our world into one that rotates completely around us. Comparison does that to us. It can do that to us. It causes us to be ungrateful and only focus on self. But there is this counterpart to comparison magnifying self. 
There is this great opportunity in the middle of comparison that cannot just point us away from self, but actually turns us and magnifies Jesus in front of us. So comparison can lead us to Jesus. Um, uh, Think about this question. When does comparison actually push us toward greater greater faithfulness in God? Think about this idea real, real briefly. When does comparing yourself toward others or to a circumstance actually push us deeper into God's faithfulness. Um, I I mean, think about the writer of Hebrews, right? The writers of Hebrews in chapters 11 and 12, what does he do? He goes back and he talks about the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God to, um, to, to people throughout centuries of history where God had shown their faith, his faithfulness to them. And then what does he start chapter 12 with? He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by all these testimonies, all these stories, all these people whose God's goodness has been so evident to their lives, what do we do? We're surrounded by them. We run the race that's in front of us. We gain encouragement. We, we gain perspective when we see this comparison of, of the lives of others. Think about other people in life. I, I, I remember the guy that mentored me in college, um, and this was long before he ever approached me to invest individually in my life. I remember seeing him and seeing the way that he led others, hearing his passion for Jesus, um, being influenced by his passion for Jesus. I remember looking at him and looking at myself and comparing myself to him and thinking there is something different in him than there is in me. I want what that joker has. I want that same thing. And what that did is that opened the door for me to be, um, to be refined for, for parts of my life that did not look like I was pursuing Jesus, to be shaped into pursuing Jesus. It caused me to follow, follow Jesus more clearly because of what I saw in someone else. When we compare anything good in this life, think about this, when we compare anything in good in this life to the richness of Jesus, it sets everything in proper perspective. This is exactly what Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter three. Listen to this with me uh, real quickly. This is Philippians three, chapter, uh, Philippians three, verses eight and nine. It says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish, as trash, in order that I may gain and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the comparison that Paul does here is he looks at everything else that that life has to offer him. He looks at his status. He looks at his provision. He looks at anything that he could gain. And in his comparison, he counts it all loss compared to knowing God through the work of Christ. That comparison sets all of life in perspective for Paul. God gives us all that we could ever want or need or imagine in the person of Jesus. He has met our greatest need. His character is not known by our experience. It is not defined by our experience. Although it may be known by it, it is not defined by it. God's character is never changing. It is always the same. He is good. He is consistent. He is just and he is generous toward us. And we see this in the person of Jesus. We see that while we were standing in direct opposition toward God, while we had done everything in our ability to break off that relationship and make things as messy as possible, while we are completely separated from him, 
What did God in his just and generous character do for us? He sent his son, Jesus, to redeem us, to buy us back from broken relationship, to do all the things that we could never, that we could never do. On my own, could I ever make right the wrong that I have done against God and my offenses toward him? And my selfishness and my greed and my, my own ambition and my lust for things and the things that I think and say, is there any way that I could outwork all of those wrongs? There's no way. God had to do something to make a way for us. And in Jesus, he did that. Jesus came and lived perfect, not doing any of those things. But then he took what my offenses toward God earned me on himself. And he, he bore the punishment to death for those things. So our just and generous God has made his character known to us in restoring us to relationship with himself, one that will outlast time and will last all of eternity. This is huge, guys. The all-powerful, all-knowing, so all-powerful, he's in control of all things, all-knowing, he knows every single aspect of my life and your life the one who knows every offense that we have committed against him. He is just and generous toward us with his son, meeting our greatest need in salvation, giving us hope for this life, an unbroken relationship with him for all eternity. God is just and generous toward us. This idea of comparison, it can lead us to Jesus, but it can also cultivate in us gratitude. Contentment is the opposite, or it can be a byproduct of comparison that is the opposite of self-magnification. Contentment in what, in what God has provided for us in Jesus is satisfaction with what we have because we know the character of, of the God who has provided it for us. We are satisfied because we know God's character, not because we get what we want. Think about being a child or being a kid and asking your parent for something and their response is no and it's the thing that you want because you think you should have it or you should deserve it but their response to you is no and and they say to you, because I love you, I'm saying no to you. I'm withholding what you think is best for you because I know the ultimate good for you. I think about that with, with my own kids. I think how many times they have come to me and they've asked for a thing or a something or they've asked for what they deem as fair. But as a parent, my job is to not just give them what they think is fair or what they think is right, but to do the best I can to point them toward the goodness of Jesus. And sometimes that means, that means saying no. But God, he is the perfect father to us. And so when we know his character and we know his character in giving to us, it cultivates in us gratitude toward him because he knows what's best for us. The last thing um, that comparison can do in, in causing us to magnify Jesus is that comparison can actually open up our eyes to the needs of others. So to where comparison can cause us to magnify self, When comparison magnifies Jesus, it actually causes us to see those who are around us. So when we read this parable, we see the laborers, um, they respond by not even having any regard for those who had really benefited from the generosity of the master. I mean, the the, the laborers that were hired first, they don't have any regard for it. They don't care about, uh, about what is the benefit they have received. They only 
They only care about what they receive as a wrong or an injustice that's done toward them. Think about these two questions. When does comparison lead us to awareness of others' needs? And and this, when does comparison lead us to celebrate with others? I think about any time that I am in a different cultural context. I remember the summer after my freshman year of college, I, um, I spent three months over in the Philippines, which um, was something I kind of never would have expected to happen. I think actually whenever um, I heard that they were positioning me in the Philippines, I had to go and get a map and actually figure out where the Philippines were. I mean, it was, it was nothing that I would have ever kind of guessed or looked for. I wanted to go to Australia, right? Like, who doesn't want to go to Australia? There's like beaches, and it's Western, and they speak English, and all that kind of stuff. I want to go to Australia, but I end up in the Philippines, this place that is so drastically different to what our everyday life looks like. I mean, for multiple reasons. One is, I'm 6'4 and white, and Filipinos are generally a little bit shorter and have a little bit darker skin, right? So there's a lot of differences that are hanging on here between me and life in the Philippines, But the other is, there's just, um, in the the bulk of the places where I spent time, there was such a drastic difference between the way of living that they experienced and the way of living that I experienced. So I looked at their life and I compared my life to their life, and I felt like I lived in such extravagance. I had so many things, and I wasn't just thinking about how I was going to live for the next day. I was thinking about what my grand five-year, 10-year, 15-year plan was as 19-year-old Chad, right? I was thinking about those things. I looked at them and I compared myself to them. And it made me aware of their life. It made me aware of their needs. And not that their life should match my life, but there are things that I saw that they needed in life or even just the way different ministries develop. I think about friends of ours in South Africa that have developed needs-based ministries for people by looking at others' lives and seeing needs that could be met. I think of friends of ours who've started a ministry downtown to people that are homeless and disenfranchised from their families. Those people looked at the needs of others and in comparison, we're able to, to take a step to, to meet those needs. So the question we want to ask is, does comparison in my life, think about this, does it magnify self or does it magnify Jesus? I think we live in a time in culture, especially in Western culture, where comparison is just served to us on a silver platter. And it's like tailor-made for us. We actually choose the people that we want to compare ourselves to. Okay? This is, in a, lot, in, in a big way, I think, what, what social media, technology, culture, what it can do for us. We look at other people's lives in this little square frame on our smartphone, and we see how perfect it was positioned, and we say, they have got it better than I do. We compare ourselves to them, and we think, man, God's goodness to them is real. And it develops discontentment in us. We look, at other, we look at other people's resumes on LinkedIn. We read other people's posts on Facebook. We readily submit ourselves to comparison. But in the midst of that, we have an opportunity. In the midst of that comparison, are we going to shine the light on self in the way that we feel like we are deficient? Or are we going to shine the light on Jesus and magnify him and think of all the ways that God has provided for us in Christ? Which way are we going to turn in the midst of that, of that comparison? When we look at the scriptures, what Jesus promises us is not that we're going to get all the things that we need. God does not promise us success in our careers. 
He doesn't promise us health. He doesn't promise us riches. He doesn't promise us kids. He doesn't promise us that people will think well of us. He doesn't promise us any of those things, even though there are some people that will falsely say that that is what he does. What God does to us in his word is he promises us more than any of those things could ever gain us. What he promises us is himself. That is what he promises us. And that is what he delivers to us and offers us through the good news of Jesus Christ. Those things that will all fade, reputations that will end, bodies that will wear out, money that will be spent, reputations that will be long forgotten. All those things that we pine and look for, just like Paul says, they pale in comparison to the way that God meets our deepest need in himself. And that's what he offers us. So when we look at others' lives and we want to we jump into this game of comparison, thinking that they've got it better off, those giftings are better, their success is better, I would only be better if, let's stop in our tracks for just a moment and ask, where are we, mag- where are we shining the light? What are we magnifying here? As we look at others' lives and we live in the midst of comparison, Are we sitting down and we're focusing just on ourselves and we're not celebrating God's goodness to others or we're not looking at the way that God has been faithful in their life and celebrating those things or not even stopping for just a second and say, God has been completely and 100% 100 faithfully to me because he gave me exactly what he promised me. He gave me himself. When all of creation started, Adam and Eve are in the garden. Everything's perfect. Relationship between, between man and woman and their creator, it's completely unhindered. And then what happens? God tells them they steward all of the land. Everything's in front of them. They can have it all. Eve looks at this one tree with this one fruit that God said, do not touch. And she looks at it and she sees that it looks good, that she thinks it would taste good. She's, she's um, intrigued by it. She compares what God has given her to what he has told her not to take of. And she jumps into opposition against God, against what he has told her is good and right for her. In his just and generous character, he has given her everything. And in that everything, he gave her this one thing to follow with the trees of the the earth. So she jumps in opposition toward him, Sin enters the world. We're all affected by it. But the moment that God begins conversation with Adam and Eve, right after they've stepped into opposition to him, his response is, there's going to be one who will come day and he's come one day and he's going to take all the wrong and he's going to make it right. There will be one who will come and he will crush the, foot, crush the head of that serpent that tempted you. He will make relationship right again. And that is exactly what God has done for us in the person of Jesus. God's character cannot be defined by our experience. It cannot be. Although it is seen at times, it can't be defined by that alone. God's character is constant in our reality. As we think about this passage today and we look at the laborers and the vineyards and we think about God's provision over us, there are all these questions that are, that are potentially floating around in your mind as the Holy Spirit's kind of processing you through this passage. Some questions you may be asking is, what are areas of my life that I'm living in discontentment? Where, where are there places where I'm living in comparison and I'm not, I'm not stopping and celebrating God's goodness and faithful to, faithfulness to me and Jesus? 
Are there specific ways that I am headlong diving into focusing on myself when I compare what I get as opposed to what other people get or what I have as opposed to what other people have? Where am I, where am I focusing completely on myself and not focusing on Jesus in the way that I compare myself to others? That's one question. Another question may be, are there ways that in the midst of comparison, you really could turn to following Jesus more faithfully because you're looking at God's faithfulness in other people's lives? That we've so perverted that someone else's bad equals, um, someone else's good equals bad for us that we can't even see the way God may be trying to lead us to a deeper level of faithfulness or a deeper walk with Jesus because we're so blinded by what we perceive as our bad in the form of someone else's good. The truth that we want to walk out of here with today is that God's character, it is unchanging. The economy of his kingdom, while it may seem upside down to us, it is the economy that all of life operates on. That he loves you. He knows you and he loves you. That when you look around you and you're looking for good in your life, that he has placed it front and center before you in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That he died on a cross so that relationship could be restored, the greatest need that we have. And that we could live in the goodness and riches of life with God. God loves you. He knows you. He is good to you. So as we're tempted to look at life around us, let's shine the light on Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, this morning I am thankful for the way that your word does what it does. You you tell us in it that it is living and active and it is so sharp it cuts to the very center of who we are. And so this morning we count on this story that Jesus told to speak truth to us individually, as a body together, but individually. That your greatest desire is that we would follow your son Jesus, that we would be people who, who, who live out our relationship with you through the goodness of Jesus to everyone that's in our sphere of influence. And so God, as you speak to us this morning, we pray that we would turn from, from any comparison that leads us into sin and that we would turn to belief in the goodness that you've shown us in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, this morning we celebrate your character. We celebrate that you are the fact that that structure all of life and the economy of all, all of the kingdom and all of the world, that you structure those things. And this morning we celebrate you, that you are good, that you are just, that you are generous. We believe those things this morning and we know them to be true because of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.